Church. How are you guys? Can you hear me okay? Okay, so I don't have to yell. Um, This morning, my little four-year-old son was up pretty early, and I was working on just kind of going over this message, and bless his heart, he gave me some sweet encouragement. He said, Mom, this is getting kind of boring. (laughs) So, um, for all you little kids in here, um, I hope that you guys can really listen to this story because it's one of my favorite, all-time favorite Bible stories. So, in full disclosure, when I was in high school, I was really messy. I was very disorganized. I left piles everywhere, all over the house. I left my light on when I would leave for periods of time, you know, and run my parents' power bill up. And this had been going on throughout my life. And I got to my senior year, and if you, if you know me, then you also know that I'm not always the most timely person. When I was in high school, I think I had 27 tardies in one class. It was quite embarrassing. So um, I can say, I just got to look like, oh, wow. <laughs> and you still, you still graduated? Yes, I did. Um, but I have come farther than I was. I can't say that I'm perfect in it, but I did make it here to this morning on time. So, um, but it was my senior year, and um, my, my dad, who's always been very gracious and very kind, um, came to me. And, and this had been a point of tension, right? The messiness the piles, the lights, the tardiness, all these things, my parents had kind of just been frustrated with me. But my dad came to me and he said, you know what? I only have one more year with you in my home. And in a year from now, I'm going to miss the piles. I'm going to miss the light being left on. I'm going to miss you. And he said, I don't want to spend this last year trying to teach you one more lesson and harp on you about this, this detail. I would rather just enjoy my time with you and spend it really well. So you would think after this gracious moment, my dad and I shared that I would have maybe had a heart change, right? And suddenly I would have started picking up my piles and turning off my light. Do you want to know something? I don't think I ever once turned my light off or ever picked up my piles, okay, truthfully. So the, the truth was that maybe my heart didn't change, but my dad gave me a gift in that. My dad understood that when we view our life through the lens of grace, and perspective, it changes everything. When we view our circumstances through the lens of a long-term perspective, a big-picture perspective, and when we view our relationships through the lens of grace, it changes everything. And my dad did that for me. Chris asked me about uh, three or four months ago um, to speak to kind of lead this series on superheroes. And I knew then that the message that God had been writing in my heart for several years now was the story of Joseph. This story 
is one that has intersected with my life in so many different seasons. And I believe that it has great, great significance for each one of us today, no matter where we find ourselves. So I'm essentially this morning going to just be telling you a very long story and trying to do the best I can to squeeze it into about 25 minutes. So do I have any readers in the room? People who love to read. Okay, so quite a few. Those of you who raise your hands probably know that if there's a book and a movie is made, usually the book is better, right? So all I'm able to do for you in these next 25 minutes is essentially give you a Cliff's Notes version or almost like the movie version. But what I can promise you is that my version that I'm going to deliver to you is going to pale in comparison to, to this. Genesis 37 through 50 are 13 of the most unbelievable chapters in the entire Bible, I believe. And so in your program insert, if you would look at that right now, there's a plan for you this week to kind of read through the story of Joseph on the back, day by day. So I want to challenge you this week to really sift through, because I can only give you so much, and there's so much richness and detail that God is in the middle of all of it, and I want you guys to get the fullness of that this week in your own personal study. But let's start right now in Genesis chapter 37. We are going to begin by looking at a family tree that might be a little bit hard for those of you to see on the back, but I think you'll get the gist of it. So a couple of weeks ago, I was able to share with you about Abraham and Sarai and their promised child. God had promised them a son, and the son that they were promised was named Isaac. So you see up there, Isaac kind of in the middle. I need one of those old school pointers. I don't have one. So Isaac grew up to marry Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah then gave birth to twin boys named Esau and Jacob. Jacob, who was also given the name Israel, Jacob became then the father of 12 sons, by several wives and concubines. And we are going to hone in on the story of Joseph, who's one of the sons of Jacob by one of his wives named Rachel. So that kind of gives you a little bit of context. And then I want us to just pick up in Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you have them. And if not, they'll be up on the screen for you to follow along. Now Israel, remember we just learned Israel is another name for Jacob. Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. Maybe you've heard of Joseph in the coat of many colors. That's what this was. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. So that sets the stage. Joseph is introduced, and it's clear that he is a essentially in a bad place with his brothers. They don't really think very highly of him. Shortly thereafter, Joseph has several different dreams. And he proceeds to tell his brothers about the content of these dreams. And he comes to them almost as if they would be excited about this. And he says, guys, you are not going to believe this. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I have these dreams, and in these dreams, you're bowing down to me. 
Now, you can imagine with this already estranged relationship that this is not helping anything. The text even says that Joseph was then hated even more by his brothers. So that already strained relationship now became even more tense. I have to wonder a little bit when I look at this, was Joseph dense? Was he prideful? What's going on here? One thing we do know is that he's 17 years old. Okay? So I know all of you guys, high school, high schoolers in the room, you guys are so mature, and you would never do something like this. But 17-year-old boys are not always called the most mature people on the planet. Right? So there's, there's a good chance that he is kind of blinded and maybe saying some of these things, maybe a little bit cocky, maybe not even aware of how he's coming across. But what follows as a result of this is pretty ugly. And the brothers begin to scheme and they begin to plan and they begin to kind of just let that anger they have for him and the jealousy and the the hatred begin to kind of create this fire and until they kind of come up with this plan that they, they think maybe we should just kill him. Maybe that's the best thing to do. So they're kind of discussing what's the best thing. And in Genesis 37, 24 through 25, they do take action. And they strip him of his coat. And it says they took him and they threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And then they sat down to eat a meal. Okay. So, folks, you know your heart is hardened when you're planning to kill someone and you can sit down without any sick feeling in your stomach and eat your meal. That is where Joseph's brothers are. There is no sense of remorse or there's, there's, there's a struggle among them that when, you'll, when you read it that they, they're not all on the same page. But there is not a sense that their hearts are softened. Their hearts are hardened to the point that they're able to sit down and eat some food as they're debating about whether they should kill their brother. So shortly thereafter, Joseph is in this pit still, and the brothers have an opportunity to sell him into slavery. There's a caravan that's passing by, and they take that opportunity to sell him into slavery. And yet... God is still leading in this. There is always a bigger story outside the smaller story. God is still leading. Now, we pick our story back up in Genesis 39. Joseph is now in Egypt. So he's been sold into slavery. And he's been placed in the house of an officer of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is equivalent to the king of Egypt. And this officer's name is Potiphar. And so what it says in Genesis 39, verses 3 through 4, it says, Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. Wow, so Joseph proves himself to be a man of integrity. He proves himself to be a man who can be trusted with affairs that probably have to do with the, king, with the pharaoh um, and, and with 
very important pieces that this man is essentially saying, I trust you and I want you to take these over. Now, we might even start to look at this story as, okay, Joseph has kind of arrived. Maybe he's going to lead out the rest of his life, live out the rest of his life serving this man, and that was kind of God's redemption. He's getting this new opportunity. And yet, God does not intend for him to be here long term. Potiphar's wife is very attracted to Joseph, and it even says that Joseph was very handsome in form and appearance. He's described as being one that's very desirable. And so Potiphar's wife begins to kind of make advances towards Joseph. And consistent with his character, Joseph says no. In verse 9, he even says, it would be sinful for me to take you. Potiphar has given me everything under his charge, but you were his wife, and it would be sinning against God, so I will not do this. And so she continues to kind of make advances towards him, and on one encounter, she actually grabs his cloak, and he flees, and when he flees, she's left with his cloak. And so instead of fessing up, what she does is she looks at this and thinks, okay, now I can blackmail him. And that's exactly what she does. Because then when her husband comes home, she says to him, Joseph was trying to take advantage of me. Potiphar believes her. He's angry. And immediately he throws Joseph into prison. Joseph did not do anything wrong. He fled temptation. He did not compromise his integrity. And yet still, it just cost him his reputation. It cost him his job. It cost him his position of great authority. That is so unfair, right? You look at this and you go like, seriously? Seriously? And yet, God is still leading in this, friends. God is still leading in this. This is not the end of Joseph's story or his impact. Let's look at Genesis 39, 21 through 23. Joseph is now in prison. And it says, The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, and he gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. What is so interesting to me when I study this passage is that we don't really see The author doesn't really let us in on the the turmoil that Joseph was probably dealing with and the emotional burden, the weight, the hurt, the frustration, the anger that he probably felt. And you could assume, well, maybe he just didn't, it didn't bother him. Friends, if our Jesus Christ was in agony before the night of the cross, I can guarantee you that Joseph felt all of those things in their fullness. So he probably felt things so deeply, but 
we don't see all of that. What we do see and what we do know from the text is that he is consistent in his character. He does not waver. He does not lose faith in his God. So, Joseph finds himself in prison. And here, he encounters two crucial players. And what happens is he notices these two men are a little bit dejected and a little bit disheartened and a little bit sad. Their faces show it. And so Joseph goes to them and he says, what's the matter? Are you okay? I want us just to pause here for a second because I think this is really important. It's just a little piece, but I want us to think back to the same teenage boy who kind of maybe ignorantly shared these dreams with his brother, his brothers. And yet here we have a man who is in prison, has been wronged, and he's engaging and recognizing the hurt of someone else. Could it be that God is making him more tender-hearted in the process? Could it be that he is not allowing himself to be hardened and bitter? but he's allowing his heart to be more tender-hearted and made softer in this process. So he asked them, what's going on? So Genesis 40, verse 8, let's look at that verse now. They said to him, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me, please. So, Joseph interprets their dreams. And again, I'm not going to get into all the details of those dreams, but what Joseph predicts is exactly what comes to pass. He accurately interprets their dreams. And he makes one request of the cupbearer. The cupbearer, there's the cupbearer and the chief baker, and the cupbearer is put back into a position of authority in the palace. And he makes one request to this man, the cupbearer. He says, Would you please do me a favor and remember me when you get back into the palace of the Pharaoh? And yet, verse 23 of chapter 40 says, The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. What? So, if we read a little bit ahead, we know that it is two more full years before Anything changes for Joseph. He stays in that prison for two more years. At this point in the story, I'm reading and I can kind of go, God, this is just cruel. How have you forgotten him? He has not done anything wrong. He has been consistent. He has has given you credit. He has honored you. And yet, Still, he's forgotten and alone and hated and he's been betrayed. It seems so unfair. Psalm 73, 13 says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. And I would imagine that Joseph felt these things very keenly. But friends, let's not forget that God is still leading in this. God is still leading in this. One quote I read recently is from Charles Spurgeon, and he says, 
Those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And I think that we're about to see even more so how that is true of Joseph. Okay, friends, so now it's been two years. Joseph is still in prison. But the scene shifts to Pharaoh. Remember who we said is kind of like the king of Egypt. And so the Pharaoh has had several intense, disturbing, very vivid dreams. And yet no one in his inner circle can interpret those dreams, and he's distraught. And it's in that moment, as he's sharing this, that the cupbearer, maybe a little bit embarrassed, goes, Ooh, I actually know a guy. I forgot to tell you two years ago, but I do know a guy who might be able to help you with this. And so Joseph is summoned from the prison, and now he's brought before Pharaoh. He's probably shaved and and washed up, and all of a sudden he's in front of the king of Egypt. Let's keep in mind that this king is not somebody who, who believes in the Hebrew God. He's not someone who proclaims the God of Israel. He most likely worshipped pagan gods. And let, yet listen to what Joseph says. Genesis 41, 15 through 16. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give you a favorable answer. Wow. Thirteen years have passed from when Joseph was sold into slavery until this moment. Thirteen years of him wondering, feeling forgotten, defeated, and yet here he stands before Pharaoh, and he does not falter, and he says, God is going to give you that answer. It's not me. Wow, that's amazing. So what happens now is that Pharaoh begins to tell these dreams. And Joseph says, okay, what's going to happen in Egypt is that there's about to be a period of seven years. And in those period of seven years, it's going to be a time of great harvest. It's going to be a time of plentiful abundance. And then that seven years is going to come to an end, and there's going to be a period of severe famine, of desolation, that will affect not only Egypt, but will affect all of the surrounding lands as well. So Joseph says, my advice would be that you put somebody in charge who can intentionally plan in these next seven years to save, to store up the grains and to store up the produce, that then when those seven years are over, those next seven years of desolation, we will have all that we need, not only for our country, but for other countries as well. So let's look at what Pharaoh says to him. In, in chapter 41, verse 15 through 16, I'm sorry, in, in verses chapter 41, 38 through 41, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, 
I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Whoa. Look at what just happened, friends. Overnight, Joseph moves from the prison cell to being second in command of Pharaoh. Only God can do that. He was not climbing a ladder. God took him and he placed him where he wanted him. Don't miss that. That's amazing. So what follows is exactly as Joseph predicted. There are seven years of plenty. And Joseph is in the position where he's able to save and he's able to store up. And he's given great charge over the land. And then those seven years do come to an end. And then the land is now desolate. And all of a sudden, in Genesis, the scene shifts now back to Jacob and his sons, the 11 sons who are still living. And they begin to talk and say, we don't have any food. We've heard Egypt has food. What if we were to go to Egypt and ask them for what we need? So let's see what happens. In Genesis 42, verse 6, Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Remember those dreams? They're coming to pass right now. Genesis 42.8 says, But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. So why would they not recognize him? Most likely, Joseph was clean-shaven. He was dressed in um, the clothes of Egyptian royalty. And he was only 17, and now it's been 20 years that he's grown up into a man. When they sold him, they were already adult men who probably have have obviously aged 20 years, but they probably looked very similar. There's also an interpreter between them. So when they come... There's an interpreter that speaks in between them. So Joseph sees and he knows. And the brothers have no clue what's going on. This is so good. This is the best part of the story. Now, we don't have time to read the next three chapters. That's what you're going to do this week. But what happens is a series. Joseph puts his brothers through a series of tests. He puts his brothers through a series of tests to prove if they are trustworthy, if they are honorable, if their hearts have changed, and if they have any remorse. Those tests include him even taking one of the brothers hostage and sending the the men, all the brothers, back to Jacob, the father. And it's a long journey. Well, they pass those tests, essentially, I could say. They prove that they have had a heart change, that they are remorseful, and that their hearts are not as hardened and and, um, steeped in their sin as they were when when they sold him. So let's skip ahead to Genesis 45. In Genesis 45, verse 1, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, Because at this point, his brothers have come back. And it's Joseph and probably a lot of royalty with him. It says he could not 
control himself any longer, and he cried, Everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So imagine the scene. It's just Joseph and his brothers now. No one else. Verse 2, it says, He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. This is intense emotion. He is feeling deeply. Verse 3, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not even answer him because they were dismayed at his presence. They are terrified. They're terrified. Verses 4 and 5, then Joseph said to his brothers, don't miss this. Please come closer to me. And they came closer to him. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verses 7 and 8, it says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his household and ruler over the land of Egypt. What's, what happens next, the text says that Joseph wept, the brothers wept, they embraced, and they talked, and then they ate. This is a picture of full and complete reconciliation. Joseph had the power to sentence them to death. But he didn't. Remember back to my story? Grace and perspective. What Joseph did for his brothers in this moment was essentially say, I see a little bit of the big picture here. God sent me here. God sent me here not just to protect and provide for this land, but to provide for you. And then he's able to embrace his brothers in forgiveness and grace and not hold anything against them. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. So God all along was working a bigger story outside of the smaller story. At no point in all of those 20 years was God picking up the pieces and scrambling and going, I don't really know what to do. This isn't what I had planned. Never. That never happens. And we don't understand how God works in this. How did he do this? Grace and perspective. When we can look at our lives through the lens of grace for others and perspective for our circumstances, it changes everything. It changes everything. Friends, I want us to go back and look at that family tree at the beginning. 
We're going to sing a song later this morning that talks about the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah is a reference to Christ because Christ was born in the line of Judah. The phrase in the song is Lion of Judah. But through the genealogy that we see here, Abraham, his son Isaac, his son son Jacob, and Jacob's son Judah, Judah is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. What's so interesting, guys, when you read this story this week, is that Judah was instrumental in selling his brother into slavery. He was kind of the leader of the pack. How is it that Judah sold his brother into slavery and his brother preserved his life? His brother was able to preserve his life and essentially preserve the life of Christ through his genealogy. Only our God could be in the details like that. I'm not making this stuff up. When you read it this week, you'll be amazed because it's unreal, the kind of details that I can't even understand how God does that. I'm going to pray for us. My challenge for us this morning as we leave is to ask ourselves, what area of my life am I not trusting that you are working a bigger story outside the smaller story? What area of my life am I not trusting, God, that you are still leading in this? You're not picking up the pieces, but you're leading. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you so much for, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the powerful story of Joseph. God, I love this story so much because it's such a beautiful picture of your goodness, your kindness, your grace, and God, your perspective that you're always, always working a bigger story outside the smaller story. And that bigger story may be bigger than our day, bigger than our year, bigger than our season of suffering, and it may be so big that we don't even see it in the span of our lifetime. God, would we trust that you are still leading in this, even when it feels like that's not true? God, we thank you, and we just pray that you would just Speak to our hearts as we continue to worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.